Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I am director of ECFR. And this week, we're talking once again about one of Europe's favourite topics, the Zeiten vendor, roughly translated as a huge turning point or a sea change, which the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz talked about in his now famous speech at the end of February, four days after Russia invaded Ukraine. First applauded by many within and outside of Germany, the Chancellor is now widely criticised for not meeting the expectations that he himself created with his speech. And I am now going to talk to some of my all-star German colleagues about whether this is fair or not, what the Zeitenwender meant and where it's going and what the rest of Europe should expect from this big sea change in German foreign policy. I'm very happy to welcome Janka Ertel, who's a senior policy fellow and head of ECFR's Asia programme. Jonathan Hakenbreusch, who's a policy fellow for economic statecraft and has been uh, doing a lot of our work on, on sanctions and on the economic aspects of the Titan vendor. And also back to the podcast is Jana Pulierin, who's a senior policy fellow, head of ECFR's Berlin office and a 24-hour round-the-clock commentator on the Titan vendor at the moment. So um, why don't we go to you first, Jana? How do you feel about the, the Titan vendor at the moment? Are you still um, as optimistic as you were in those heady days at the end of February when uh, Olaf Scholz made this speech to the parliament? I would say I'm less optimistic, but I haven't given up hope. Um, and I think two things are important when we discuss Zeitenwende and the speech, and I want to bring them up uh, here in the very beginning. First, I think Olaf Scholz has not uh, stated his attempt to do a Zeitenwende, uh, but he has said that Russia's war of aggression marks a turning point in history. So I think Olaf Scholz's original plan was not to turn German foreign policy um, or security and defense policy upside down. The contrary was true. He was really very willing, I think, to continue along um, the 16 years uh, of, of Merkel. Um, and his ambition was more about yeah, dare more progress at home, um, but not abroad. Um, so I think Olaf Scholz's initial intention was to focus on continuity and not change. And the Zeitenwende is now imposed on Germany from the outside. I think that is important. And then um, I think the context of the, the speech is also very important because he gave the speech in the first days of the war when basically all observers, at least all observers I know, still assumed a quick victory for Russia. So I think it was not primarily about announcing a long-term plan uh, for Germany completely thought through, but a very quick reaction to the a scenario of Russia basically taking over Ukraine. And uh, it was uh, an attempt to justify the 100 billion euro for defense and the attempt to get Germany's kind of territorial defense uh, back on track as quickly as possible. So I think um, it was born in a moment. Uh, it needs to be understood in that context. And for me, just to, to end, for me, the Zeitenwende now is a great opportunity for the German government uh, that they need to embrace, because I think the notion that something is changing fundamentally is exactly right. But I think Zeitenwende describes more than a moment of shock that will kind of go away pretty soon and we can go back to a status quo ante. 
But I think it's something that we now need to grasp and do, uh, and that everything that Olaf Scholz has announced so far is a good start. And you, we can talk about it being a revolution in a certain sense, but I think it's only a start. It's only the beginning. And I think now the big chunk of the work is ahead of us. That's how I see it. Okay, what about you, Jonathan? Hi, Mark. Um, I, I think I agree uh, with Jana, and I'm glad you went to her first since since she's our 24-hour commentator on, on the topic. From a, I, I think she said said it, what, what I thought as well is that this is something, there's, there's a lot coming from the outside at Germany, basically, on this, and a lot of things understandably being projected into, into it from the outside. All while you can see on the inside, on the, on the domestic politics front, there's lots of infighting, there's um, within the coalition, I think people aren't or, or weren't so sure um, where this was going, you know, both in the Green and, and the Social Democratic Party, people wondering, you know, should not have part of the 100 billion go towards something else than military. Why, why are we putting 100 billion into the military and into military spending? That's a random figure, uh, which I mean, you know, in essence is true, of course, 105 or 95 could, um, <laughs> would just, just be as, as, as logical. So that, and then, and this, and the conservatives also ready to, um, under whose rule a country has been for a long time and, and the defense ministries were in their hands and so forth and, and has been willing to, do their politics around it because it's just such a big topic and it's such a it's such an emotional topic where where you can easily polarize and so while they're needed for the constitutional change on Titan Vendor to implement the two percent in the constitution the two uh, percent military spending they were playing in the beginning with the thought of of uh, making you know of only giving as many votes as you need if the coalition entirely voted for it and there's important domestic elections there are a lot of domestic out. politics so. But Yanka, how can you sort of explain how much criticism and friendly fire the, the the German government's been under, given that it has been willing to to ship lethal weapons to Ukraine, it it has agreed to increase its defense spending to two percent, it's talking about um ending its dependency on, on Russian uh, coal and uh, moving towards getting rid of, of oil and gas over over um, over time, I mean, why are people so critical? Well, generally, I think that's a it's a problem that Ger- that uh, Germans are self critical and people are critical of Germany, and that's something that is kind of unavoidable as well. And if you have a big revolutionary change upcoming, then it's ne- it's obvious that all eyes are on Germany, and that every little discussion and every little step will be under great scrutiny. I think that's also fair enough. You know, these are big and momentous changes that are ongoing, and and everyone should weigh in. Um, in terms of what they say. The problem is that the, the government hasn't been really great on the communications front. Um, it has not really been speaking with one voice. There were very two very strong voices. That's the voices of Annalena Baerbock and Robert Habeck, who've done a phenomenal job at explaining what this could be um, and where this could lead. Um, Annalena Baerbock on the international front, Robert Habeck on the internal front. I don't think we have ever seen an economics minister standing there and explaining the necessity of an LNG terminal and how fast it can be built um, in a way that Robert Habeck has just done. So that's quite impressive. But I think that Zeitenbender also is a problem in a way because it limits our focus um, um, on the military dimension, on the Ukraine dimension, on the Russia dimension, the way it was kind of framed um, in the speech. And it's taking place under the, the currently like overall dynamic of system competition. And that is the bigger factor that is also to be kind of taken into account. So I think the worry is that we will see a Zeitenbender light that is kind of focused on the military dimension, is focused on 
territorial defense in Europe is focused very much on the Russia question and the Zeitenwende light missing the bigger picture, which is um, the real dynamic that is going on. And I think that is where this government has received undue criticism um, in keeping its eyes on the ball with the um, government uh, consultations with India ongoing um, during this time, with Scholz's travel to Japan, which was incredibly important at this stage to reassure allies in, in the region, um, in the Indo-Pacific. Um, I think this is where the, the opposition has criticized the government a lot for it, but where I actually see a commitment to not doing Zeitenwende light, but taking the systemic changes that are unha- unraveling on the globe um, very seriously and doing that and investing in that while there is a war ongoing in Europe, is, is quite profound and it's a very interesting step to take. And it's the first time that we see the German government acting like that. Okay, so what I'd like to do now is to go a bit deeper into some of these different areas. We'll start with security and defence, because that's where a lot of the discussions being. We'll end with your systemic competition uh, and we'll go via the economy and, and energy as we move towards this systemic competition. But Jana, why don't you um, start us off on, on that? What has actually happened um, since the 24th of of February in terms of German security and defence policy. Um, How big have the changes been so far? What are the kind of next steps going to be? What do you think the the challenges are now? So maybe um, let's go back to the speech itself and look at the kind of revolutionary declarations that uh, Scholz made and that were met with a broad consensus. So he said, from now on, uh, we will deliver arms to Ukraine. We were supporting far-reaching sanctions on Russia, but it was also very much about strengthening NATO's eastern flank. It was about the special fund for the Bundeswehr, the 100 billion, uh, secured in basic law. Um, It was about uh, procuring um, some F-35 fighter jets as a successor solution for the tornado. Um, It was about armed drones, and he broke some taboos for the SPD. So I think what he declared there was more than I had hoped (laughs) Actually, uh, but at the same time, these things were also part of a debate, especially the armed drones and uh, the tornado successor plane that we had for ages. So criticism was early on that this was basically catching up with reality and not preparing uh, Germany for the future. And I think there is some truth to it. But I think far reaching declarations. Um, The problem is that now some of it seems to be in danger of getting pulverized in the mills of the coalition. And actually, as Jonathan has already said, the power plays of the opposition. But it's also some of it is not really uh, thought through. So take this declaration that from now on, Germany will spend 2% on defense and have this Sondervermögen, this special fund. So now it turns out that the idea seems to be that our regular defense budget seems to be frozen at about 50 billion euros until 2026. And that with the 100 billion fund, yeah, we will use the money successively over the next couple of years to to reach the 2% target. So how we want to proceed if this additional money is used is by no means clear. And it's a big question mark. uh, And there is this, I think, suspicion that the government wants to leave this to the next government and just kick the can down the road. And the CDU now insists on a more sustainable solution to to guarantee um, kind of long term 2% defense spending, which I think is is good. But there is no solution to this. This is still hotly debated and the process is stalled. Um, When it comes to kind of weapons deliveries to Ukraine or NATO's eastern flank, Especially on the on the first on the weapons delivery, there was a lot of criticism that German Germany is not moving decisively, that it 
always follows the European convoy at kind of the very last moment uh, when it has no other options. So I think people miss leadership. And that's why I'm still, I mean, maybe less uh, optimistic, but I haven't given up hope. What I, what I think is um, exactly as, as Janka, as Jonathan have said, is what would be necessary now is really a, a long-term, broader approach, what to do with Seitenwende. But I think it's too early to criticize the government for not having done this. But at the same time, I think this ener positive energy has somewhat left the political debate and uh, all, all all kinds of concerns are, are re-emerging. Um, I think it will be a long-term challenge for Germany, especially in security and defense, looking at the future of the European security order, the fact that there is no way uh, to go back to a status quo ante because uh, the European security order has been destroyed uh, already prior to the war and not been accepted by Russia. So I think it's now about managing a long-term confrontation with Russia, uh, managing the risk of escalation, and uh, basically within NATO to move from forward uh, deterrence to forward defense. But what, in practical terms, beyond buying lots of F-35s and se sending Gepard tanks to Ukraine? Which haven't arrived, of course, uh, yet. I think that is, that is, that is part of the the broader um, complaint. I think long-term or mid to long-term in NATO, it's about making Germany kind of the conventional backbone of, of NATO deterrence. It's about sending additional troops. Um, it's about rethinking what deterrence or forward defense could mean under these circumstances. So, And I think for Germany in the security and defense realm, of course, there are a lot of nitty-gritty problems, like how can we spend actually um, 25 or even 35 billion euros um, on kind of procure, procurement uh, in a year, which is kind of, there are a lot of questions. Is the German machinery able to absorb all this money? How can we reform the procurement process? And I think these are all important questions and problems. But for me, it's more about uh, a change of mindset in Germany. So it's it's the strategic culture. It's our relationship towards military means, not kind of, as, as Janka said, she sees a danger that Germany, I don't know, gets over militarized or that we focus too much on the military. I don't see that, actually. I see us still struggling a lot with the task at hand and with kind of a reality where two hours away from Berlin, flight hours away, is kind of a hot war with kind of battle tanks crossing borders. Can we be a bit more um, specific about what the task at hand is? And feel free, um, Jonathan and, and Janka, to come in as well. But, you know, there's obviously a very immediate short-term task, which is giving lots of equipment to the Ukrainians so that they can carry on fighting against the Russians and push back against uh, Russia in, in the way that they've been doing in, in the Donbass and in other parts of, of Ukraine. But what is the actual longer term challenge? Germany? Because most of the criticism about 2% and all the other stuff was all to do with Germany not being a, a kind of expeditionary power that could go and be a helpful partner to the to the French or to the Americans in bombing Afghanistan or, or doing stuff in the Central African Republic and Mali. But presumably that's not what's required now. So maybe last word for me before the others can take over. I think Germany and NATO has been a problem uh, prior to, to this war because we promised all sorts of things but that were not funded. And I think now we have the chance to actually deliver um, and to fulfill our promises. That for me is Zeitenwende. And that's also um, on, on what the 100 billion was based on. So um, basically looking at our commitment in 
in NATO and what we've seen and what we see now with the question um, which weapons we deliver to Ukraine, this is also largely influenced by the question, what can we deliver? Because as the, the chief of the German army has said <laughs> uh, on the first day of the war, I think he basically more or less said we are blank or we are naked. Um, and that just highlights um, how, how little there is that Germany could deliver. And so for me, the, the task at hand is maybe not uh, talking about expeditionary missions, but about Germany being the backbone of conventional deterrence. And by the way, the, the missions question is not off the table. I mean, I think the Bundestag decides kind of shortly on um, extending the mandate for the um, UN MINUSMA mission in Mali. And I think they will extend the mandate. Um, and so we have completely forgotten to talk about lessons learned from Afghanistan um, and, and the Mali uh, engagement over, over this. But this is still uh, a problem because German troops are still in Mali. Uh, they will continue to be there. And the situation is just getting more dangerous for them with the French withdrawing. Yeah. So it looks like Germany's on autopilot rather than actually able to think about what its interests are. Because you went there to help the French and the French are withdrawing. So it's a bit weird getting stuck in Mali. But anyway, let's move on to the economic realm, um, because there, in, in many ways, the change is even more profound than what's been happening in the military realm. Because in the military, you know, the big kind of psychological shift probably took place in the 90s when German troops were committed into to fight in other places. So these are more tactical changes about, you know, we're going up to 2% and, um, you know, Germany spent 2% before. So it's in, in that way, it's kind of less dramatic than what seems to be happening in the economic realm where there wasn't just a practice of being an export Weltmeister, but also a legitimating philosophy for the export Weltmeister um, shaft, which was essentially about changing the rest of the world by trading with it and using interdependence as a way of turning rivals into 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 friends and that was a kind of core bit not just of the german relationship with russia but also with china and with other powers around the world and that is now being scrutinized in a way that it has never been scrutinized before through the prism of sanctions and of the energy relationship, but it has much wider implications. What's actually happened so far on, on sanctions and on the energy policy, Jonathan? Right, Mark. So um, you asked Jana before, why is there so much criticism of Germany um, uh, while they're doing all this stuff, sending weapons, um, uh, participating in sanctions and all that? And at least from the economic point of view, I, I would argue that it's partly because it's a projection on past German policies and, you know, and all the policies leading up exactly to the invasion, not as not actually how Germany is behaving since the invasion. You know, the questions of how could you get to, into a situation where your uh, where your gas storage is, even the gas storage is the critical infrastructure itself is owned by Gazprom and not by Germans or Europeans. So because since the invasion, I think on, on sanctions, I think the overall valuation is positive. I think the, the Germans were, were key and on many of the sanctions that have been put in place. Uh, from a U.S. perspective, uh, certainly they may have been hesitant about SWIFT, but I think in in the U.S. administration there were there were hesitancies about that as well, about a complete blank SWIFT, you know, de-SWIFTing of Russia. And on energy, that's the big question. I think you know Robert Habeck uh, has probably the greatest credibility on on the stuff you could have as a German politician. So I think I think he would cut off the oil and the gas right away if he deemed that possible. But basically, what the calculation has been is that. What you're getting out of 
more sanctions politically is is more than uncertain because you know changing Putin's behavior is is probably not possible through them. And in fact, sanctions history suggests that the more you go to the last lifeline of a regime, the more you add economic impact and sanctions, the less the the sanctions regime utility curve climbs and it could even fall. So the more a regime could lash out. So that's not to say that's wrong that it's wrong to to go for energy sanctions. We should absolutely cut energy zero as fast as possible. And the government was right here not to follow the first calls um, of, you know, saying this will just cost uh, 0.5% of GDP and uh, and then we're done and we've cut off energy because now we're seeing estimates that it would have caused a much bigger recession. And if you look at statements from the U.S., and also what our sense is that the U.S. was never really keen on the Europeans going for a full gas and oil embargo immediately either. So on the sanctions bit of things, I think the Germans have overall been playing a key role, actually. And one of the big open questions, and I think it applies to military too, um, I wonder what Jana and Jankas think, is this question of you know a country focused on on stability, on no war ever again, never again, all those things is coming to terms with the fact that actually having defenses and having things you can shoot with can actually be de-escalatory. And how do we, if, if you watch TV debates, be it on sanctions or be it on, on military, oftentimes the big question is we should be de-escalating and so forth. There are two philosophies now in the German debate where, where one is saying, you know, by staying calm and not having big economic or military weapons that we threaten people with, we're de-escalating. And then more and more people coming to terms with the fact that in, in some cases and employed strategically, those weapons can actually be de-escalating and, and it would be escalating and, you know, make the world less secure if you don't use them or if you don't threaten to use them. Can we maybe just go a bit more um, concrete in terms of what's actually happening? So because there's been a lot of criticism about Germany slowing down decisions at an EU level. Coal is happening quickly. Germans are very proud of the fact that by the end of the year, Russian coal will not be used um, in Germany. But Germany has been sort of very sceptical about moving away from oil and gas. And on oil, it looks like they're, they're sort of moving towards some sort of... I mean, do you want to say exactly where we are on oil and on gas? So uh, following that criticism, my, my, my sense is the government felt like they had to um, show that they're actually not that sceptical. So, so Habeck, um, the economics minister, went on air and said, you know, we're actually ready. We need some transition time, but we're now ready uh, we need to find one more solution for the refinery in, in Schwedt in the eastern uh, part of the country. But then we can now support an oil embargo. So I think, and you know, Foreign Minister Baerbock has just said, um, uh, was in Ukraine yesterday and, and said, uh, we're phasing out Russian energy to zero. I think they're trying to make it faster than they anticipated. You know, getting off 55% of your imp- gas imports will take a little bit of time, but they're trying to do it faster within the next six to 18 months, which is a big, big difference in terms of the time span. But my sense is that the mind is put to that and that politically speaking, there was probably a willingness or, you know, they they wanted to show that there's quite a few other Europeans, uh, most notably Hungary, that are the big opposing forces within Europe on energy embargo. But what's clear is, is that they've clearly been saying that we can't go too fast because that's the dependency we've gotten ourselves into um, successive governments over over the past uh, decades. And um, only when it comes with not too much damage to the German economy will they go there. And that's that's to say, like accepting the worst recession since 1945 for the country probably 
as opposed to almost no political immediate advantage from imposing these embargoes immediately, looks a lot like you're shooting yourself in the foot from their perspective. While if you're getting off oil you know, within, in three months, you're not so much in that weak position and you're still doing the, the energy sanctions. That's sort of the sense, I think, in Berlin and in, in the government. So, Janke, you spent a lot of the last few years thinking about the relationship between um, uh, systemic rivalry, dependency, and but also thinking about how it intersects with the with the sort of energy climate transition. So, how do you look at what's going on and the lessons which Germany's taking from from the early period of this Russia crisis? I think we've seen that um, we've had a long discussion over the last few years that Germany's kind of a bit asleep on the wheel when it comes to systemic rivalry, when it comes to the big changes that are happening in the world. And this was certainly the, the war was certainly a wake up call on the kind of future of the relations with authoritarian states, including the future of the relationship with China. China has not dropped off the agenda, which is um, kind of quite surprising to many of those that are looking at the problem right now and that are looking at the discussions right now. China's very much front and center in the conversation about how the future will be described. And that really has a, has a close connection to the kind of energy transition question, because, you know, it is nice and fine if um, Christian Lindner, our finance minister, sits in the Bundestag and, and says, uh, you know, we're talking about freedom energy and the green transition is our call for independence and we're going to be freed from Russian oil and gas. But the reality is that we're very dependent on a single country in our green energy supply chain. So that is China uh, on many of the critical materials, but also in terms of products in general and in our competitiveness of our industry in these sectors is totally at stake. The good thing is that this conversation has started now and that we actually have the opportunity to avoid a critical dependence of that sort while building out our green energy supplies. And that is a good momentum that we have generated. And even in the opposition, the call for, you know, you think we're dependent on Russia, look at our China exposure, is actually coming becoming quite a, a vocal talking point. And that is the first step towards changing the trajectory that we're on. Because I think, as Jana has said, we're a big, fat, rich country at the heart of Europe. Um, we need to decide what kind of player we want to be in this new future. And that certainly doesn't stop um, with a few billion euros in terms of military equipment. Can I ask Janka a question, Mark? Hijacking your podcast... No, because, uh, I mean, there was a press release um, yesterday by President Macron uh, where he highlighted the need for um, yeah, close relationship with China. And if I'm not mistaken, um, there was also a call um, between uh, Olaf Scholz and President Xi Jinping. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. And and where he also said that he was very much interested in strengthening the bilateral relationship. So do you see kind of Europe moving your way? Or do you see politicians having learned, having learned the lesson that they should have learned also now from kind of being completely dependent on Russia when it comes to energy? Or do you think that there are some question marks? <laughs> I think we have to be very careful about Europe moving my way. I think there's a, a huge degree of humbleness is required in that regard. What I see is a trend that is kind of not stoppable by single individual phone calls, uh, by individual statements, by individual players. What we're seeing is a trajectory, an economic trajectory of what business decisions are looking like, where supply chains are moving, um, where the broader political debate is, and that has moved when it comes to China. So I would urge everyone to just not pay too much attention to every individual phone call that takes place and readouts that are particularly presented by the Chinese side that stress 
the importance of bilateral cooperation, of course, there's an interest in maintaining a positive trade relationship with China. But the awareness level that is there has has very much changed. And all of the kind of guardrails are being put into place for that to make that trade more resilient um, and more secure for, for the future. So I think that we are on a good track in that regard. So you think that the debates that we've had in Germany over the last couple of years about 5G, for example, would be different if they were happening post? Yes, um, I, I would I would very much agree that they would be very different. Um, I think particularly the question of the competitiveness of the industry. We're now seeing that debate emerging in the wind energy sector. We're seeing the conversation about you know, how do we how do we safeguard competitive industries where we have technology leadership from unfair market distorting practices and from kind of from unfair competition on global markets? How do we secure their footprint in the global supply chain? How do we make sure that we can, if we focus on renewable energy, how we can focus on um, supply chains in the future that will not only enable us to have supply, but also enable us to have competitive European players in these um, in these uh, areas. I think that's something that has, is very much kind of starting to become a real conversation in Europe. And that's a good thing, because I think we need to avoid a replay of the 5G debate uh, at, at all costs. OK, well, we're coming up to the end of our time now. But if I sort of play back the conversation we've had in my mind over the last few minutes, it, it strikes me that um, there's been a lot of Sturm und Drang about what the Titan vendor was and whether it's happening. But if you put all of the things you said together, um, it seems that, you know, in 18 months to two years time, Germany's going to look like a very different country. It would have spent an extra hundred billion on, um, on, on defense. It looks like there are kind of complicated technical discussions about, about Germany's role and what it needs to do, which, which need to go the right way. But there's a lot going on in that area. In terms of sanctions and energy dependency, we've already moved quite a lot in in the short term on coal, but it looks like on oil and gas, things will look very different in, in a couple of years' time. And if what Juncker's saying about China policy is right, that is something which could be really quite fundamental in terms of Europe's relationship with China, given that over half of EU trade with China is German trade. This, this is pretty big. Um, not just for Germany, but but in fact, for the whole of, of European-China relations. So I, I suppose maybe what people are doing is is overestimating how much site and vendor you're going to get in the short term, but underestimating how big this is going to be in the, in the longer run. The good news is we've got hundreds, if not thousands more podcasts to talk about the, the site and vendor in, in the future, so we can see whether we're right um, as time goes on. But there's one thing left to do in, in our podcast today, which is our bookshelf segment. So, um, Jana, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Uh, I'm reading about Ukraine constantly, but I want to recommend a podcast um, by BBC Radio. Um, there is this program called Desert Island Discs, um, and I just recently discovered it because Fiona Hill from the United States was on it in a superb uh, episode. And, yeah, it was aired on... It's May, and it's really, really interesting. I'm a huge fan of Fiona Hills, uh, and so, yeah, have a listen. It is indeed great, but it's also an amazing uh, program, which has been running for decades and decades, so you can listen to a lot of the most so it's a shame interesting people. <laughs> that I discovered it only now. <laughs> I know, but it's a, it's a treasure trove, the Desert Island Disc Archive. What's on your bookshelf, Janka? 
So I think what I would like to draw attention to at the moment is is two pieces coming out of uh, the Chinese discourse on on Ukraine. One is a more kind of well-known one, a foreign affairs piece by Yan Xiaotong from early May on China's Ukraine conundrum. And then there was a sub-China podcast with Chen Dingding in mid-March that's really worth looking into. I think it's important to understand the Chinese perspective of the dynamics at play, understand kind of the narrative that's coming out from Beijing and helps to see also the evolution over time, because how China positions itself to the war in Ukraine is going to be very decisive for all of the bigger questions that are kind of important for the post-war um, world that were, that is emerged at some point. Cool. And what about you, Jonathan? I'm finally reading um, Adam Tooze's uh, The Deluge, uh, The Great War and the Remaking of Global Order in 1916-1931, where he basically retells, if you will, the story of the First World War in geoeconomic terms and, and how Hitler and Mussolini became insurgents to the liberal international order, that project that at that time the U.S. was pursuing maybe half-heartedly, but during the Second World War, full-heartedly. And of course, reminiscent of today, where there's another, a new insurgent or several challenging the current order. So fascinating also on the economic weapons that that, uh, he describes and how they got used. Great. And I'd like to recommend an essay in uh, Die Zeit by um, Andreas Wiersching, which is writing about Germany's culture of uh, of remembering and how Ukraine is, is contributing to quite a a scary kind of change in Germany's attitude towards the Holocaust uh, and relativizing it and changing uh, the nature of German relationship with its past. So that's all we've got time for this week. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please do go to whatever platform you've used to listen to us on and subscribe to the podcast immediately so that you can listen to all the future episodes on the Titan Bender that we promised to record for you. Um, And while you're there, you might as well give us a a positive review and a five-star rating because uh, it will help bring other people to the podcast. We'll put links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu slash podcasts. But for now, from Jana Pulierin, Jonathan Hakenbreich, Janka Erpel, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of this podcast is Lucy Halpenthal and the editor of this episode is Leonie Muller.